Welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their film and television adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Brenna. And our show is created on the traditional lands of the Haudenosaunee, the Huron-Wendat, and the Anishinaabe on lands connected to the Toronto Purchase Treaty 13 of 1805. And on to Kamloops Teswetmik territory within the unceded traditional lands of Swetmakulu. As settlers, we take seriously our responsibility to center and to uplift Indigenous creatives and to work to build a more inclusive YA environment for all marginalized folks. And this comes into play a little bit in today's topic because we are talking about holes and it does have a fairly diverse cast, at least in the film. Yeah, and I think the book is actually saying some really interesting things about race i mean fairly like sort of entry-level kids stuff but interesting nonetheless mm-hmm. for a book that has a character in it named armpit as a bustle essay i read <laughs> but the book said <laughs> this is true and before we maybe get a little too far into this we should acknowledge that we have a special guest on this episode brenna yay special guest yay so i'm happy to welcome my friend jenny nolf who's joined us to talk about howls Hi, thank you for having me. Ah, thanks for coming on. It was interesting because I feel like I don't know a lot of people who feel strongly about this property. And then when I mentioned that I was reading it, you got really excited. And I thought, oh, well, you should absolutely come on and have a chat with us. Yeah, it's easily one of my favorite books. But I also have recognized that a lot of uh, Gen Zers find this book and property like really important to them. So, I mean, I'm obviously not in Gen Z, nor anywhere near, but I think because it's a Texas book, it also was taught a lot in schools. Oh, okay. Yeah, this has like no bearing to the schooling that I did, at least. Brenna, did you read this at all? This no. might have been after our time, right? Yeah, I mean, Louis Sekar, Seychar, we said we were going to look that up and then we didn't, Joe. We definitely did not. Definitely did not. Anyway, he was a writer I knew as a kid because I think I said this on the podcast when we were teasing this episode. He wrote this book called Sideways Stories from Wayside School that was published in like the 70s, I think. Yeah. And it was very big in my elementary school. (laughs) Very big. So I knew him from that. But that is like a collection of extremely bizarre, like, Apparently, there's a whole series, the Wayside School series, and it's very middle grade, even younger, probably. And it's like, you know, the teachers are secretly murderers and everything is just extreme and very, very, very silly. Mm. So I did not know what to expect. And I just looked it up and it's Saker. And I did not know what to expect when it came to holes. So I was pleasantly surprised by this experience, I have to say. Hmm. Jenny, what was the reasoning behind assigning this in schools? Is it just because it's got like good morality lessons and stuff? I think so. It's actually really strange because I read it before I had to read it for school because it was like on one of those like book lists that parents would get that, oh, this book is good for your child to read and critically think. Okay. This is really sad and funny. I had a copy, like an original copy of this book, and I thought I still had it for this podcast, so I went to go look for it, and then I realized that I had given it to Half Price Books literally last year with the (gasps) thought in my mind that, oh, I've read this book so many times, I probably (laughs) won't reread it again. (laughs) That's always when it comes up then, right? (laughs) Yeah, and then I was like, some kid could enjoy this too. Oh, well, that's a nice thought. Yeah. 
But I think that it is because there's a lot of, like, first off, the Texas landscape for schools in Texas, that's an easy pick. But I think that the racial stuff that the book kind of tries to balance and talk about and discuss without necessarily, like, spoon-feeding it to you, I think made it an easy, teachable book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what's intriguing to me about this book is that it feels very young. Like when I was reading it, it's a very fast read. It's a very accessible read. And yet as I'm reading it, all I can think of is this is a book that at its core is about child abuse. Yes. Yes, it is. (laughs) Just absolutely terrible adults. And, you know, there's a, a strong bent in YA literature about adults who take advantage of children for financial gain or whatever. And this very much leans into those kinds of ideas but it's still you could have taken this in a very dark way and i wouldn't have been surprised if children had have died in this book i mean they almost hint at it at the beginning yeah the kid who uh gets purposely bitten by the rattlesnake to get out of there yeah that's dark i mean it's really dark there's an essay about this book for bustle that i've read Mostly because it had a great title, What Holes Taught Me About the Prison Industrial Complex. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) By Charlotte Aylin. And um, in it, she makes, that's the exact point she makes. She says that, you know, she laughed because there are moments that are diabolically funny, but in between the palindromes and the pig-based bits of folklore, Sekar manages to plant a few unshakable truths about injustice. The prison is not fair. The kids aren't being reformed. They're just painfully exploited. In the 1800s love story flashbacks, readers learn that Kate, a white woman, was in love with Sam, a black man who was murdered when the two of them attempted to elope together. The warden is a literal descendant of the man who led the mob against them. Anyway, she goes on, she lists it all, and she's like, this is actually really dark stuff. And the book itself is full of really dark stuff. And I think that it's an interesting balance that, I don't know, it's like page to page, you don't really feel like you're reading a a heavy, dark analysis of, yeah, the prison industrial complex. And then you step away from it and you're like, oh, actually, there's quite a lot going on in this book. I can see why it won a Newbery. It's very much the kind of stuff that Newbery often rewards, Mm. sort of allegorical fiction. I guess I should tell people what it's about. I just realized we didn't do that. Yeah, I was going to say, oh, we should probably get around to that plot at some point. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so um, Holes is the story of Stanley Yelnats IV. I'm really into the idea of a family naming dynasty entirely established based on a gag. I like that. So Stanley is Yelnats backwards, obviously. Stanley's 14 years old. His family is... Poor. I would say his family is more like broke. His dad wants to be an inventor and keeps sort of failing at being an inventor. Mm-hmm. It feels very like 80s and early 90s. Like there's actually quite a few horror movies where like somebody's dad wants to be an inventor and it basically just means, oh, your family is dead poor and yeah. at risk of being homeless all the time. Well, yeah. isn't it kind of like Beauty and the Beast with Belle's dad? A little bit of that. Yeah. yeah. I was thinking of uh, Gremlins as well. Oh. Real interesting cultural moment. Are a lot of people striving to be inventors anymore, or do you just become a VC bro if that's what you want to do? (laughs) I think it's all startups now. Right. (laughs) Um, So anyway, Stanley is very much in the wrong place at the wrong time. He gets hit in the head with a pair of shoes uh, and gets accused of stealing the shoes, and it turns out they're actually very famous shoes. And he ends up like sent down to a juvenile prison camp, basically, Mm -hmm. for this what is effectively a misunderstanding. And the story is about Camp Green Lake, this prison camp where kids dig five foot by five foot holes all day long. 
And the narrative intertwines between that present day story and two historical stories, one about Stanley's great great grandfather in Latvia and a promise he makes to a mystic. And the other story is about an outlaw who has her heart broken when the community kills her boyfriend because he's involved in an interracial romance with her. Mm-hmm. And so she basically goes on a robbing and murdering spree. And yeah. so these stories all intertwine with each other to tell the story of effectively two curses. A town that's been cursed by this attempt to destroy this couple, well, not attempt, this successful destruction Mm -hmm. of this couple and a curse because um stanley's great-great-grandfather doesn't go back to fulfill a promise he made to this mystic so stanley's family is cursed and this land is cursed and only through a daring escape from the prison camp and a commitment to deep friendship between stanley and another boy at the camp zero do both curses get ultimately resolved and everybody we actually like lives happily ever after and everybody we don't like is punished the end yeah (laughs) that's how ya works (laughs) in in the good cases yes yes it's surprising how many authors and also films more so films really just f up the formula Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's It's really not rocket science and yet they manage to find a way Mm mm-hmm So I'm curious, why do you two think that this book works as well as it does? Because this was probably one of the more enjoyable books that we've read in the last little while. Like, Mm -hmm. this was just a joy to read. Mm -hmm. It's a very traditional sort of folk or fairy tale structure, right? And um, there's a reason why people have been telling stories with this structure for as long as we have narrative. It's very satisfying, right? (laughs) It's satisfying to have a character who we like, who is misunderstood and being punished inappropriately eventually find vindication right so i think just structurally it's a good it's a good story but i also for me i think the really compelling aspect was the way in which stanley and hector or zero as he's known at the camp push against a lot of sort of notions of masculinity and particularly toxic masculinity that is embodied in the other boys in the camp. And I found the way that they kind of stand apart from a lot of that really reinforced my interest in them as characters and my desire to see them succeed. So I think thematically it works really well too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I actually agree. It's really interesting rereading this after. I think the last time I reread it, maybe high school, maybe middle school level. Yeah, so okay. it's been over a decade. And Toxic masculinity was not a word that was in my vocabulary no. or really? phrase. Really? <laughs> <laughs> you were in a middle grade uh, dealing with issues of toxic. Well, actually, here's the funny thing: you probably were you dealing with it. You were just didn't have the issues. name for it. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, it's Jenny. Just, it's so amazing to read a book that, like, I'm like, oh, I know this term now, and especially when you have Mr. Sir's character who constantly mm-hmm. is like. This isn't a Girl Scouts camp. Yeah. And it's like, oh, man. like, And then you learn about his name later, and that's why he's, like, so manly and tries to disguise his femininity. And he, like, feels like he needs to put on this mask and, mm-hmm. like, constantly remind people, I'm a man. <laughs> and then if you, like, take the history of, like, the backstory, especially when you have the Trout Walker character. Mm-hmm. A lot of this is so relevant to today, it makes me shocked that it was written like 20 years ago. Yeah, it's almost like we haven't made very much ground. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's interesting. Normally, I get annoyed when we read books that have like no women in them. But number one, I like Kissing Kate quite a lot. And <laughs> number two, I think that it's still having some pretty interesting conversations about gender politics, even as the boys are, are very isolated in their experience of gender. I thought it was Absolutely. pretty complex and interesting. Yeah, I was quite taken with the fact that the warden is not only female, but also that she's not driven by the traditional notions of femininity. Mm -hmm. I mean, she does use things like, you know, nail polish as a weapon, but it's nail polish that's been spiked with, uh, what, rattlesnake venom? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I for sure am going to like hit up Sephora and see if that's a thing, because it seems (laughs) great. Seems like it might be more of an Etsy thing, but yeah, <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly it, is that her her performances of femininity are violent. It's always violent. So that's really interesting, too. And, you know, you think about the ways in which, like, Stanley's really the only character who knows his mom. Like, most of the other boys are very, they're either alienated from their families or they believe their families have forgotten about them, and particularly mothers. Like, mothers come up a lot. Mm -hmm. Jenny might not know this, but I always notice. (laughs) (laughs) Brenna's a mom. Can you tell? She's a little bit, she's got her finger on the pulse of like, hey, there's no moms here. How come people are talking about moms in a bad way? (laughs) Yeah. And they almost always are. And that's one of the things that distances Stanley from the other boys at the beginning of his arrival at the camp, right, is that he wants to write to his mom and connect with her. Um, He worries about her worrying about him. He's putting on this performance of like, yeah, it's just like I'm a rich kid at summer camp, mom. Whereas the other boys are all like, your mom doesn't care about you. Our moms don't care about us. We're on our own here. Right. With the exception of Zero, who, of course, like his mom ended up having to leave him behind. Yeah, and he's been he's been alienated from his mother by these social structures. So when we have the warden, it would be easy for her to take on a maternal role. But of course, she doesn't. Instead, Mr. Pendansky, they call him mom, right? And he hates it. But that idea that these boys are really sort of looking for a way to negotiate gendered relationships within the camp space. But it's not easy because it's not made easy for them, right? Yeah, Yeah, because it's, I mean, essentially the camp space is inherently male. That's what happens when you get in juvenile, like, detention centers. But also, I think we've mentioned it, what I do like about the book is that it's so against juvenile, like, detention centers like this, and even, like, jail in general. It doesn't see that as... Even like as much as they say like this builds character, I think the book is trying to tell us it doesn't build character, which not until I think a couple years ago, a lot of teachers and like, Mm -hmm. I would say like educators realized that no, punishing a child who has gone through this, it has like emotional like baggage to them. That's not helpful. That's actually like really the opposite. And they should be going through something like therapy versus instead of like building a hole. And I mean, the failures of the camp in this regard are so many, right? Uh, Mr. Pendanski is supposed to be the counselor, but he's not actually capable of like emotionally guiding these children. There's the idea that, yeah, it's supposedly like, quote unquote, building character. But of course, 
the only time character is actually built in any meaningful way is through Stanley and Zero's escape, right? It's their escape and then they're they're learning to rely on each other and the commitment to their friendship that builds their character. So, uh, Well, I would actually challenge that. I'd, I'd say it actually happens earlier when Stanley is convinced to start teaching Zero to read. Sure, but I guess what I'm saying is outside the confines of what's been set up by right. the yes, okay. camp yeah. itself, right? The camp has done nothing to help facilitate no. any growth. Yes. No, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, I think I think Sekar is really critical of. I mean, the whole the whole thing is a satire, right? Like none of these boys should be here, and they're gaining nothing from it. And there's this really explicit way in which, like, the people who are the benefactors of this camp are not these boys, right? It's, this is all happening so that Miss Walker mm -hmm. can find some prize. It has nothing to do with the boys at all. No. No. Yeah, she wants to find that buried treasure. Mm -hmm. Which actually reminds me of something you said earlier that I thought of that I forgot to mention, but you said that she uses nail polish as a way, like a feminine object as a way to like punish people. Well, Kissing Kate Barlow does too That's with true. her lipstick. So it's like all these feminine like icons are actually deadly. Mm -hmm. Okay. Which is interesting. I have an issue. I think my biggest issue with this book is this idea that Kate Barlow was a well-meaning school teacher and she loved the community and she had this great relationship and it was everything that she was looking for and when that gets ripped away she becomes an outlaw who kills people it rings a little bit weird like oh you can be perfect but then if something bad happens to you then you will become a master villain <laughs> Because I, I don't think she's ever treated as a bad person, but no. I think she's described as an outlaw, and that doesn't have a positive connotation. Well, except that all of the social structures that she is fighting against are, like, sort of inherently bad in that context, right? So, like, mm -hmm. the towns are racist, the social structures are violent, the banks she robs are not feeding the communities. Like, so she's kind of like an old school outlaw, like in that the law itself is wrong and she's she's against it. Yeah. Her victims are always only male as well, only which of men. course is like an extra perk. <laughs> yeah. And only white men, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting that her first kill is a policeman who uh, is not being a very good policeman. No. Very anti-police, this book. It is, right? Because it's... The idea that comes over, up over and over again in the book is that justice and the law are two very different things, right? Like, the boys are being punished by the law, but that punishment is not just. Mm -hmm. And Sam has to be killed by the community because that's the letter of the law, but obviously it's not just. And so over and over again, we see how, like, legal structures are not actually equivalent to like any kind of morality or justice. Yeah. And that's all, like sort of what the boys are learning, if they're learning anything. <laughs> it's that this system isn't structured to actually support them in any way. Yeah. Like there's an anarchic streak in this book as well, right? That literally everybody in a position of authority is either evil or an idiot. With maybe the exception of the lawyer at the end, but that's yeah. also just because we need to find a way to wrap this up. A little bit deus ex machina kind of situation there. <laughs> yeah, but the lawyer also, if you notice, her gender is female and mm -hmm. she is a Hispanic woman. Mm -hmm. So it's she's definitely a non-white, non-male character. Yeah, it's the traditional structures of authority that really take a beating in this book. Uh, rightly so, frankly. Yeah. 
I think one of the things that frightened me the most about this is that moment where the warden after Zero has run away <gasps> and she just says, okay, pull up his records. Oh, he has no family. So destroy it and no one will ever come looking for him. And it's horrifying because they're talking about a child who has run away into the desert to die. And it's just like, okay, well, can we cover our butts? Yes. Excellent. Do it. And let's just forget this child ever existed. <laughs> Yeah, Zero is such an important character in the this notion of like how the system fails marginalized kids, right? Mm -hmm. Like from the beginning, he should not have been punished the way he was. And they feel no duty of care or loyalty to Zero. It's just like, well, a good thing it was him who ran away because he's the easiest one to cover the tracks of. Yeah. Yeah, it's really tragic, especially considering that he didn't even know any better. Like, he even says so. He's like, I didn't realize I was stealing. I just needed shoes. Yeah. Ugh. Ugh. It hurts. So terrible. I, like, cried a little bit. Oh, Jenny. But during that, I cry at the end of this book every time. I'm like, oh, he gets what he wants in his life. Zero is a very sweet character to me. I mm -hmm. want to protect him. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Out of curiosity, do you get a bit of a, like, a Peter Panish kind of vibe to any of this? We've got a tribe of lost boys. Like, you basically have to go up against a threatening adult figure in order to, like, grow as a character, but also to kind of become the hero of your own story and so on. I did not, but oh, I buy it. <laughs> yeah, the Lost Boys aspect, I, I can see it. For example, when I was rereading this, I mentioned Beating the Beast earlier, but, like, mm -hmm. Trout Walker is a super Gaston character. And I was like, well, oh. he probably pulls from a lot of, like, traditional childhood stories to mix into his modern story, which a lot of people do. This is a very like traditional storytelling device. You hear something and then you change it. Yeah. I think that's one of the reasons why it's maybe had the longevity. I think apart from this anti-authoritarian bent that remains unfortunately very prescient, there's like a classicism to the way that this book is written that I think has made it very enduring, but then mm. it's updating it in fun little novel ways that keep it feeling a little bit fresh. Yeah, I don't, I don't disagree with that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, do you want to maybe switch over and talk a little bit about the movie? Yes, yes, I do. Okay. My name is Stanley Yelnats. All my life, I seem to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. My grandpa says it's because of this 150-year-old curse. There's no curse on this family. There is on the men in this family. It's all because of your no-good, dirty, rotten, pig-stealing great-great-grandpa. <laughs> Welcome to Camp Green Lake. Where's the lake? <laughs> this is Stanley. Everyone in my family names their son Stanley because it's... Yelnats backwards. Well, that's interesting. Did you tell him about the lizards? You don't bother them, they won't bother you. Usually. Now, to break his family's curse... It's destiny. He'll have to solve a mystery. What do you say we dig one more hole? Why? I feel lucky. And find what's hidden at Camp Green Lake. What is that? I think I might have found something. What'd you find? You better get down here. All right. So the film is from 
2003. And actually, I just realized we were meant to acknowledge the fact that this entire episode was a request from a listener. So oh, yeah. <laughs> apologies for not acknowledging that earlier. So this was a request made by Khadija Ahmed, and she asked us to cover this back in May. So we're finally getting around to it now. And she also requested us to cover something else. And Khadija, we're going to aim to do that, but it's probably not going to happen until early next year. So I apologize for that. But talking about the movie, 2003. (laughs) So we're looking at another Disney film. So back to back Disney after a wrinkle in time two weeks ago. Giving my Disney Plus account the old workout. There we go. (laughs) Mm -hmm. This feels very firmly in the Disney live action canon. Like a very comfortable zone for this. Mm Mm-hmm. We've got a $20 million budget. It ended up grossing $67.4 million in North America, 78% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. And as always, it's kind of like, who are these children? And also look at this stacked adult cast. So we've got John Voight as Mr. Sir, Tim Blake Nelson as Mr. Pandesky or Mom. Of course, Sigourney Weaver as the warden, but also like Patricia Arquette, Dulé Hill, And then this is also the film that introduces Shia LaBeouf to the world. So he was on TV before, but this is his feature debut. Yeah, he was making the show alongside filming Even Stevens. And this is my favorite era of Shia LaBeouf. It's before he got broken. (laughs) Oh, oh no. (laughs) Yeah, when they start to get tattoos all over their bodies sometimes. No, you know what? That's not even very fair because there's lots of people with tattoos who are not in I was going to say, that's the squarest thing you've ever said. Wow, (laughs) I have a tattoo. (laughs) But you don't have them on your neck is what I'm saying. (laughs) No, there's plenty of people who probably have neck tattoos who are also lovely. Um, I think Shia LaBeouf had a rough round, like a lot of child actors who, yeah, they get broken by the system and then hopefully they recover. I think he's actually having a bit of a career renaissance, but you you can see the leading man potential in this role. I wouldn't say it's his best role, if only because I think Stanley is actually a bit of a boring character. They wanted to cast someone who evoked like an 80s Tom Hanks vibe, and I actually do definitely get that from him in this film. That sort of silly, goofy, like you can see a leading man under there, but the physical comedy is like more immediately on the surface. I definitely get that from him in this era of his career. Oh, I can see that, especially since one of the things I thought of, like, watching the end of this movie, I was like, this ends, like, every 80s kids movie, where the three adults are, like, watching some glorious thing happen with the kids celebrating, and they look miserable. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, like, oh, we would have gotten away with it if not for those darn kids. Very Scooby-Doo. So good. So it's almost tough to talk about this movie if only because it's so faithful to the book so this was adapted by saker himself and then it's directed with absolutely zero directorial presence by andrew davis didn't he direct the fugitive oh gosh maybe i think so i feel like i read that somewhere he did and a tom hanks movie yeah there we go just thought it was an (laughs) odd An odd dress. Can we talk about the stacked adult cast, please, though? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So we've got Sigourney Weaver, John Voight, Patricia Arquette. We've got Dooley Hill, who I love. We've got Henry Winkler, like the friggin' Fonz. We've got Eartha Kitt playing the mystic in Latvia. Like, come on. (laughs) It feels very much like we need to do this beloved classic justice by doing that thing that YA adaptations do, which is saying, okay, well, we can't sell the movie on the kids because 
you usually cast nobodies and hope that they shine. So, okay, let's just make sure we've got really good adults to kind of prop the film up a little bit. And they, I think they're all kind of on their game. There's a lot of, um, it feels very much like, yeah, like an 80s kids movie, Disney live action, adventure story. All the adults are extreme versions of adulthood. They're all just constantly mugging for the camera, but in a way that I find really endearing and does feel very nostalgic as a YA film. I think as kids movies started to take themselves more seriously, we lost a lot of that tone and I kind of got a great deal of pleasure from watching Holes in that way, that sort of return to the 80s or 90s kind of caper kid movie. Mm-hmm. Jenny, did you see this when it first came out? I did see it when it first came out. I actually had the soundtrack, that whole song, the digging up the whole song. It mm-hmm. is a classic banger. <laughs> <laughs> I did think the soundtrack was almost its most interesting component. Like, it's not at all what I expected. Any soundtrack that includes Shaggy, Moby, and Eagle Eye Cherry on the same soundtrack is making some choices, let me tell you. Mm-hmm. It's very post '90s soundtrack, oh, wow. early 2000s. It has the vibes. It's, it almost feels like okay. Well, let's get a little bit of street cred by casting some of these kinds of people. I'm not gonna lie. A lot of this movie feels very white because of Shia LaBeouf and like the kind of character that Stanley is. But then, of course, we've also got a really diverse youth cast. And then we've got this soundtrack that's like, okay, we're not hanging out in the suburbs anymore. And you're just like, hmm, okay, this maybe was put together by an all-white team at Disney. (laughs) It totally was. (laughs) The only thing that ever bothered me about the casting, and I do, I am a Shia LaBeouf, like, fan. I thought he was too skinny. And I think that, like, one of the main components of Stanley Neal Nats is the fact that he's an overweight child and picked on. And I was like... I was angry at that casting for a very long time when I was young. It's interesting because it's basically the only aspect of the book that they drop, right? Like, it's an incredibly faithful adaptation. And then that huge aspect of who Stanley is and what the book is sort of saying about him and the way he's treated by society, we kind of, well, we, we explicitly lose it in the film. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because I, I texted Joe and I, when we were reading it, and you know, we read a lot of books from the 90s, and a lot of them don't age well, especially books that involve a lot of young men talking to each other. We get yeah. a lot of R word, we get a lot of racial slurs, we get a lot of ableism, we get a lot mm-hmm. of fat phobia. And I actually think one of the unexpected pleasures of this book was how well it has aged. There's none of that. Mm-hmm. And even the way they address Stanley's fatness in the book it's more about how it's a failing of the rest of society to not see that there's like a real kid in there Mm -hmm. like he's doing extreme manual labor with very little food in the desert like he does lose weight over the course of the narrative but that's not a celebration in the story I think it's really important that that's not a celebration in the story and that that's not like a, oh, look, there was this unexpected upside of being in the desert, like punishing your body into into socially acceptable shape. And I was really impressed by all of that. I think Saker is doing something pretty um, surprising for a YA book centered on boys' stories in the 90s with the way he deals with Stanley's body. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah I, I can't help but wonder if the reason that they didn't cast a fact actor is because they would then have to acknowledge that Stanley would lose weight and then you would have to have that actor lose weight. And they don't tend to do that to kids. Like, kids don't gain and lose weight for roles in that way. 
basically in the way that we typically see with somebody like Christian Bale for Mm -hmm. adult roles. So I wonder if they just thought, you know what, we don't have time even like to shut the production down so that a child could maybe lose the weight naturally or a little bit more healthily. So I wonder if they just said, you know what, let's not even go there and we'll just cast very skinny Shia LaBeouf. Yeah, I think there's a million reasons why I would be disturbed by the resculpting of children's bodies for cinema. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, but, <laughs> but it is a shame because I think as a result, that's basically the only kind of social complexity of Stanley's character in the book is rooted in that experience and rooted in the bullying that he experiences as a result of his body. And so when we lose that, the flip side is that we don't have that story in the book. Or sorry, we don't have that story in the film. I think it's a bit of a shame. And as a result, like Stanley's an outsider in the film because we're told he's an outsider. And eventually we see how his interpretation of masculinity is different from the other boys in the tent. But it takes a while. Yeah, it takes a while. And we don't have that same kind of like outcast quality to Stanley that is so central to his character in the book. Hmm. Yeah. And I think actually coming from someone who was a little bit like larger in the elementary school when I read this, I really connected with the bullying aspect because it's, it feels really unfair. And it does make you feel kind of outsidery and feel like you're not normal. And I think that is a component to Stanley's character that was kind of a little bit lost in the film. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah, because really all the other boys are fairly like-minded. Like, it's one of the reasons that Zero gravitates to Stanley is because they're both pushed the furthest to the margins. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. I will say one of the, sorry, just to shift gears and think a little bit more about some of the things that the film is doing. I sometimes struggle to grasp the size of the camp in the book. And I feel like the film for all of the ways that it sometimes plays it safe by just really sticking close to the book, the film by having a larger scope and, you know, this is filmed in California, this is not filmed in Texas, but there is a grandiosity to this. This feels a little bit like an epic, particularly when the two boys run away and they actually have to scale the big thumb mountain. Mm -hmm. It's like, yeah, okay, this is an adventure Mm -hmm. now. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, it actually feels like a giant desert. I agree. It is kind of hard to like comprehend the scope when you're reading a book that just uh, tells you it's wide and vast and that's where it ends. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think if we met some of the other camps in the books, like if we met some of the other tents, it might have had that impact. But I did have that moment. So do you guys remember when the last iPhone came out, the one that has like the three cameras on the back? People were like, oh, they shouldn't do that because there's like a there's a kind of a phobia of like seeing big holes like that, like that people have. And I was like, well, that seems made up. But I looked it up and it's actually like a real thing. I don't know why. Anyway. (laughs) Wow. A phobia of holes. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, it's like but a fear particularly of like clustered holes. I don't know. Apparently Hmm. it's genetic because if you see a plant with clustered holes like that, it's probably poisonous. Anyway, it doesn't matter. So when (laughs) when they fly like over the desert in the opening shot and it's just like all of those holes everywhere i was like oh i bet there's some people who really can't watch this movie because that's exactly what it looks like <laughs> like miles really and miles does. and miles yeah i did not know about that this is fascinating information that's what i'm here for i'm here to bring the news <laughs> sure let's call it that. <laughs> now i'm gonna be mad that i can't remember what the name of it is i mean you could look it up we can pause yeah okay it's called trypophobia it's the fear okay. of clustered holes like those shown in a lotus seed pod. Wow. That is yes. very specific. Okay. Sponges, soap bubbles, and even aerated chocolate can be triggers. 
Imagine being afraid of arrow bars. That, that just doesn't seem like a great life anymore, does it? <laughs> Please write in if you have trypophobia. I'm very curious about it. Thank you. Oh, but also I hope you didn't watch this movie because it might have set you off. Holes is not for you. Really, the opening <laughs> scene would not be for you at all. I guess this is where go. you would definitely recommend the book over the movie because you can't, you can only envision right. the holes. You can't actually see them yes. in person. You never see them clustered together in the book. It's really good. <laughs> yeah. I will say one of the other great visual moments in the film is where after Stanley has found the lipstick and passed it off to Zigzag, and of course Zigzag is now taking credit for it. Oh, it's X-ray. Is it X-ray? Damn. Okay. Because of the eyes. That's how I remember it is because he has actual bad eyes. It wouldn't make any sense that he actually found something. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Just another joke embedded in here, right? And in the book, they actually make it, but in the film, it gets lost. Eh. But I love the visual spectacle of when the holes are so deep that they're literally walking through them and it's become caverns and the warden is just getting really angry that they haven't discovered anything. But thinking about young men digging to those depths where literally they have dug so far into the ground that it's over the heads of adults. I think it's a good visual Mm -hmm. reinforcement of the ridiculousness that they have been made to do at this camp and just the sheer amount of child abuse that is occurring for this one woman's win. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. A lot of it. And I love how Stanley is one of the few kids that immediately hones in like, oh, we're digging holes and they want us to look for stuff. They they clearly want us to find something. (laughs) They're looking for something very specific. (laughs) Yeah, the other kids don't ever seem to really catch on. I, I mean, I think that's really the big distinction, right? This book is saying, if you're a hero, if you're a protagonist, question authority. Mm -hmm. Don't just accept facts Mm -hmm. because adults tell you. Whereas the other kids are just constantly looking for ways, okay, how can I make my life easier in the immediate future? I just want the day off. Yeah. Yeah, where Stanley's looking past that, he's like, no, we're looking for something that has a high value. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. Oh, uh, this is very off topic random, but I wanted to say it before I forgot. I'm a very avid TikTok fan. And there's a TikTok sound that's from this movie. And it's a really popular one. And I heard it and I was like, no, (laughs) that's where that one's from. Because they use a lot of Disney stuff for TikTok. It's when um, the young Miss Walker is digging holes with her grandpa and she's like, I'm tired of this grandpa. And the grandpa goes, that's too damn bad. I'm tired of this grandpa. That's too damn bad. Like that's a TikTok (laughs) sound. Really? Yeah. (laughs) That's interesting. Holes is living on in the cultural lexicon in new and exciting ways on TikTok. (laughs) And Gen Z really loves this movie, apparently. That is so bizarre to me. Okay, well, now I want to know if there's any Gen Z listeners or any other TikTok people. If you could explain why this film in particular is connecting with folks, I'm very interested to hear. I do think, you mentioned the article, uh, Brianna, you mentioned the article that you read earlier. I think it is because kids learned a lot about the prison system through this and diversity and like an adversity and systemic issues. For sure. (sighs) It's shocking to me how much is embedded in, I don't want to call it like a candy-coated veneer, but like this book and the film, really, if we're being honest, both of them do very similar things. It goes down so easy. I could actually see people reading this and missing a lot of the messages because it's just so entertaining, but Mm -hmm. it's also 100% right there on the surface. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
yeah, I think that's why it gets assigned in schools that might not actually be that anti-prison industrial complex. Like, that article in Bustle talks about how it was the first time she had sort of realized what the school-to-prison pipeline was when she saw these kids being basically treated in the same way that Stanley and Zero had been treated in the book, like when she got back to school after reading it over summer vacation. So I find that really interesting. That is also horrifying. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, fun times in, or rather dark times in a fun book. There we go. (laughs) Totally. I really enjoyed this one. I really enjoy this one too, obviously. I don't know how many times I've reread it now. I mean, it sounds like quite a few times, Jenny. (laughs) Yeah, I probably... (laughs) When I was little, I would reread books for fun because I would get bored one day and I would just reread a book in a day. (laughs) Wow. This is that kind of ideal book too, right? It's such an easy read in the way Mm -hmm. that you can just get lost in it and it's a page turner and all of a sudden, like I think I read this, yeah, maybe in like 24 hours. Yeah. And I'm a slow, slow reader. Yeah, it's pretty easy to. I think that's also why I did not prefer the film, because I could mm. reread the book in about the same time <laughs> yeah. than the movie, and I'm like, well, why would I do that? <laughs> yeah, I'll get more out of this book. But I mean, in all honesty, this is probably ugh, maybe the most faithful film adaptation that we've covered. Yeah, I think it might actually be. I do have an issue with that. I feel like it's almost too faithful to a fault. I feel yeah, that way too. I agree. I don't feel like I got a lot out of the film because I had just read the book. I think if I hadn't ever read the book and then I was just like, oh, I'm just going to cheat and I'll watch the movie, I would actually feel like I had used my time efficiently. But this is not a movie that benefits from having just read the book at all. Strongly agree. Part of it, it maybe is having the same author and screenwriter and having a text that is so clearly so beloved and a a desire to do it sort of quote unquote justice. But the end result is there's no sort of interesting or challenging choices. And there's not even really that much embrace of the visual medium. It's just a movie of the book. And it was fine. But yeah, I'd rather just reread the book than watch the movie again. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not like the cast isn't there. It's a pretty great cast. And it has the same interesting moments that the book has but i don't know it, it's it's two hours i think that's the thing it, it yeah, could have too long it a bit i think particularly too because the color palette in the film it's set in the desert and then they're all wearing these orange prison jumpsuits so mm. it's kind of an ugly film in certain yeah, ways it's really an ugly film and i say that as someone who lives in the desert and is working really hard <laughs> to find it pretty <laughs> I mean, again, that really just drives home this idea that we are watching a film about the prison industrial complex because you can't watch it and not get the sense that these are prisoners who Mm -hmm. just happen to be children who are doing manual labor of excruciating just the heat and the amount of physical labor and the lack of water and all that. Like, it's all terrible. But it also doesn't make for an enjoyable watch when it's this long like we're just really watching people suffer for like a full two hours totally pretty much (laughs) it doesn't have the same joyfulness that the book has which not to say that the subject matter that it goes through is joyful but there is like an easy readability that you guys mentioned and the film doesn't have that easy watchability yeah one thing that really struck me is you know Zero is like near death in the book. Mm-hmm. We never get to that point. Like, I get he's lying there and he like, he's obviously needs thirst. But like, he looks the parched. Suffering, he needs chapstick. He's fine. Yeah. 
there's not that level of suffering that you can get to in the book, which is probably fine when you have child actors. But as a result, the joy that comes from the survival is also muted. Mm -hmm. So you don't have the same lows, but you also don't have the same highs. And in general, the emotional palette of the film is really flat. Yeah. And that, to me, is a bit of a shame. Yeah. Do you think this could have worked better as an animated movie? Because then you could show those things. Because obviously, like, in an animation format, you could have a child lose weight, or you could show a child who was, like, on the verge of death, essentially. That is very true. I think it would work, for all the reasons you just outlined. I wouldn't want it to be made as a Disney animated film, though. I would want to see, like, a Miyazaki take on this. Yeah, totally. Or even Who Made Anastasia? That style of animation. Okay. It's Don Bluth and Gary Goldman directed Anastasia. Okay. I don't know my animators well enough. Don Bluth was like the secret of Nim guy, and together they did All Dogs Go to Heaven in addition to Anastasia. If you want to talk about a high emotional palette, All Dogs Mm -hmm. Go to Heaven Mm -hmm. is Mm -hmm. like, Mm -hmm. try to make it through that film without shedding a tear. Seriously. He's also extremely anti-Disney. Oh, good. Okay. I mean, I'm not going to lie. I could do with a little (laughs) anti-Disney. This is Disney, though. This movie, at least. (laughs) It's the problem. (laughs) I agree. You mentioned something earlier that it's almost too white. And the film, Mm. with the exact adaptation and adding the too whiteness on the top of it, it kind of loses some of the value of the book. Only ever so slightly, but it's enough Mm. to be noticeable. Yes. And I feel like that's it. You could watch this and be like, this is a perfectly fine and serviceable film. But also, if you've read the book, you're going to feel just that tinge of, "Mm, this was made by a giant conglomerate for white audiences. Mm -hmm. You know, we've done our due diligence to cast diverse actors. And everybody is good. And this movie is eminently watchable. And yet there's just that little something missing. Yeah. Yeah. You guys want to do YA bingo? Yeah. Cool. Yes. Bingo! Not a good bingo. Okay, so Jenny, as our guest, you get to go first. You have a couple of bingo squares. Okay, I'm going to choose abuse for my first one. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you are. Yeah, you are. This whole book. uh, The whole book and movie, yeah. I'm going to go with gaslighting. Mm Mm-hmm. And also I'm going to go with unlikely friendships for Hector and um, Stanley. Okay. Jenny, any other ones jump out at you? Uh, mediocre white boys. <laughs> Is that for Stanley? I mean, there's a lot of mediocre white boys in this book, but um, yeah, I guess for Stanley. <laughs> <laughs> oh, obviously stunt casting, stunt casting, stunt casting, stunt casting. Yeah. And a little bit more stunt casting. Just a touch. I won't lie, when I, I had completely forgotten that Sigourney Weaver is in this, and I'm like a huge fan. So I was very excited. It was probably more one of the more restrained performances that I've seen from her, but I will say it's always nice to see Sigourney Weaver show up to play your film's villain. Cool. I'm going to add in musicality, because we also did have quite a few sequences set to that just fantastic soundtrack. That's true. And the digging songs. Mm-hmm. Cool. Okay. All right. So, Jenny, if people wanted to get in touch with you and talk about your love of holes, how would they find you? 
so you can find me on Twitter at Jenny Lee X33, and Lee is spelled L E I G H. <laughs> and if you want to find me actually basically anywhere on the internet, you can just plug that in, and I use it straight across the board. Nice. nice. Okay. So if you want to get in touch with us and talk about holes, why you loved it, why we misunderstood the film, if you've got some fan fiction for Joe, you can reach us at hashtag HKHSpod on the Twitters. Joe, where do they find you? I am at a beast on my remote, and that's the letter B. And I'm at Brenna C. Gray, that's gray with an A, and if you've got something longer, you can send it to HKHSpod at gmail.com. Keep those minisode ideas coming. Mm-hmm. Our next book, Joe, I believe is another listener request. It is, and of course I didn't look up who that listener is, so we will have to do that before the next <laughs> book. But uh, this one has actually been a multiple request, so I'm going to mm-hmm. use that as my defense for not knowing one person's name offhand. But uh, we are going to be checking out All the Bright Places. So the book is from 2015, and the film adaptation came out earlier this year. Awesome. I'm looking forward to this one. And then what's our next mini-sode about, Joe? So our next mini-sode is actually going to wrap up our second season. So don't worry about that. We're actually going to continue having new episodes every week, but it's mostly just the numbers are starting to get a little brightening for me. So I'm going to bring this back down to zero. Mm -hmm. So to wrap up book two, we're going to be celebrating 40 years of Degrassi, Brenna. I'm so excited. (laughs) Everybody knows how much I love Degrassi and how it is the cultural touchstone to end all cultural touchstones. So I'm excited for this one. We're going to look at every single era of Degrassi, Joe. I'm all of them terrified because you're talking about 40 years worth of content and you've not passed me a single episode yet. Yeah, no, totally haven't. I totally have not. Uh, I will, though. Um, So until next time, until I'm ready to drown Joe in Degrassi content, thanks again, Jenny, for joining us today. Thank you for having me. And uh, I'll see you on the page. And I will see you on the screen. Bye-bye.